Our Father, we thank You that You are not like us. We thank You for Your self-existence. We are creatures that You have made. Um, You have always been. We can't fathom that. You, 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 you've never had a beginning. You, you just are. You are the I am. You are the self-existent one. Um, when we think about who you are and how different you are from us, it gives us great security as we walk along this trail of life. Because we have gifts and abilities and skills that you have handed out to each of us. We all have different gifts and skills and abilities. But uh, you did not give any man all of the gifts or all of the skills. Therefore, we are all needy and we are all deficient. We are flawed because of sin. Uh, We get easily frustrated At times we get confused because we cannot sort out what is the next step we should take. And sometimes we take steps that seem to us to be right, but we find ourselves in a cul-de-sac, in an absolute dead end. Uh, There are times in life where for lack of a better term, the lights go out. And even though we know you, and even though we trust, we trusted in your Son for our salvation and for our lives forever, we find ourselves at times, not always, but at times we find ourselves in the dark, and we're confused, and we're unsure about why we, why we are there, and we're not sure what to do next. But thank you that you are the God who declares about himself that uh, you say that darkness and light are alike to you. All that simply means is you've never been in the dark. You've never been in the dark about anything, and you've never been in the dark about us. Even when we're in the dark, you're not. Uh, the psalmist said in Psalm 142.3, when my spirit was overwhelmed, you knew my path. So as we run this race, as we walk this trail, there are times when we have clarity and we thank you for those days. There are other times when we're confused and it's dark, but we thank you that even when we lose our way, you know precisely what you're doing. You will steer us You will navigate us. You will get us to where you want us to be. And it's all because the Lord is my shepherd. We are your people and the sheep of your pasture. But Jesus is our Savior. He's our shepherd. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. We're grateful for that fact. Encourage us as we face things in our lives that are dark to us and unknown, and we don't know how things are going to work out or sort out. But that's okay, because we know you. 
and you got us covered. That calms our hearts. It quiets our spirits. And it's the truth. We're grateful for that truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this semester we are discussing the issue of finishing strong in the Christian life. Christian life is a race. That uh, metaphor is used in different places in Scripture. Uh, It is a, uh, as we said last week, the Christian life, uh, it is a race. If you think about Hebrews chapter 12, um, it makes it very clear. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, those are the men and women described in the previous chapter in Hebrews 11, who've gone on to be with the Lord. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and does it not easily entangle us. And let us run. See, there it is. There's the metaphor. And let us run the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Now, I left out two words in that text. It doesn't say let us run the race, fixing our eyes on Jesus. It says let us run the race with endurance. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. See, that's very important because what that tells us is the kind of race that we're running. And what we're running is not a sprint because you don't need endurance to run a sprint. You just need speed and a great start. But this isn't uh, the 100 meters. It's not the 200 meters. Uh, This is a long obedience in the same direction, to use Eugene Peterson's term. It's a marathon. It's an ultramarathon. So last week we talked about the priority of finishing strong. I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Timothy 4, verse 16, as we, as we kick into this tonight. Because it, it gives the balance that we have to watch as we run this race. Um, I want to go to another passage on my way to 1 Timothy 4. It just popped into my head. In Proverbs, it says, it says, Guard your heart, for from it flows the wellsprings of life. Is that not Proverbs 4? It's either Proverbs 4 or 5. Just stay in 1 Timothy 4. I'll look it up. Uh, or if you want to flip over to Proverbs, maybe you'll beat me to it. But see, this is what happens in Bible study. You're going to a verse, and you think of another verse. And you know, here's the interesting thing. This book all ties together. That's what's interesting. My dad used to have, what he, he had a study Bible years ago called the Thompson Chain Reference Bible. And in the margin, uh, you would look at a verse, and then it would have a chain. It'd have about five or six or seven other verses that related to it, and you just follow the verses. You just follow the chain because it's all tied together. Um, let's see if I can find this. Uh, da, da, da. Yeah, it's 423 of Proverbs. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. 
and, and in the Old Testament mind, the, the Hebrew mind, the heart, the heart was you. It was everything about you. It, 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 the heart, not just that thing ticking, it's not the pacemaker thing, but it's, it's your mind, it's your emotions, it's your will, it's you. It's you. You can tell when someone's doing something half-hearted. Sometimes uh, athletes, you can tell they're just kind of coasting. And you want to yell, and you do yell. You ever just yell at the TV? Um, I, I, I hear there are certain guys that do that. <laughs> but uh, sometimes I just, I, I just, I'll just yell at the guy. Put your heart in it. What are you doing, you overpaid chump? And I say that in Christian love. Quit coasting. My gosh. Act like you care a little bit. Put your heart into it. Okay. So, uh, so what does this say? Watch over your heart. Watch, watch over yourself. Pay attention. Okay, now keep that in mind. Why? Because out of the heart, here's another verse. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Um... So the heart is very significant, and it's a wellspring. It's an artesian well. And, and as you think, and as you, what you believe, and what you take in, and what you chew on affects how you behave. There's a link between what you think about and how you behave. Don't be, Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which in the Old Testament is part of heart. Does this make sense? Sure it does. So let's go back to 1 Timothy 4, and Paul's talking to this young pastor, and one of the things that he says to him in verse 16, watch this. He says, pay close attention, Timothy, pay close attention, watch this, to yourself and to your teaching. Pay, pay close attention to you, your behavior, your thinking, and as a leader, to your doctrine. Um, so there are two things we've got to be watching as Christian men. Uh, you say, well, hey, well, I'm not a pastor. I'm not in full-time ministry. Actually, a case could be made if you're a man who's following Christ. Uh, there's no part-time Christianity. You're just following Christ. And it doesn't matter what your vocation is. You're just following Christ. You're just following the Lord Jesus. It's full time. Um, as we're going through life, we, we've got to keep a watch. Watch on my heart. Watch on what, what I'm thinking. Watch on my emotions. A, a watch on myself. You go in and you get a physical, and they're doing a physical analysis, an evaluation. All right, you got to drop this and do that, and we're going to change this, and we're going to put you on this. They're watching you. Uh, but, you know, we're not just bodies, we're souls. We're souls. So don't fear those who can kill your body. Fear, fear him who can kill a soul. All they can do is kill you. But your soul keeps going. Okay. Um,
when we're talking about running the race of the Christian life, and it's a long race, it's not a sprint. It's a long race, you get tired, you get exhausted, you get worn out. Sometimes you cramp up, sometimes you pull a hamstring, sometimes you, need, you want to get out of the race, sometimes you're just weary, you just want to quit. Uh, a guy was telling me today about his friend who he's known for years, solid Christian guy who's just decided he's going to divorce his wife because they've been married 30 years and it's been a hard marriage and he's just tired. He's just tired. He's just worn out. And he doesn't want to do it anymore. So he's filed for a divorce. Christian guy. He's got kids and everything. They're all watching him. He's got grandkids. They're all watching. But he's just tired of running. You know what he is? He's tired of obeying. He's tired of following Christ. What about the guy who's got cancer? What about the guy that's been fighting cancer for 10 or 15 or 20 years? He's in a cancer of circumstances. He's in a prison. Uh, don't you think he gets tired of that? Huh? What about someone that deals with chronic pain? Don't you think they get tired of dealing with that stuff and dealing with it and dealing with it and dealing with it? What do you, can you divorce chronic pain? No. No, you got to just keep showing up. It's a long race. It's a hard race. Jesus said, in the world you'll have tribulation. Acts 14.22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Philippians 1.29, it's been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for His sake. This is a hard race. So as you're running the race, you've got to be aware of two things. You've got to be aware of yourself, You've got to be monitoring yourself, and you've got to be aware of your teaching. Um, I'll, I'll explain this here in a minute. Um, tonight, we're going to look at the different ways we can finish. We all want to finish strong. But uh, I am of the opinion that the majority of men in the Bible who started strong actually did not finish strong. There are several ways to finish. I was reading uh, this morning um, about Thomas Cranmer. Thomas Cranmer was one of the men who embraced... Uh, you know, Martin Luther, when he nailed those theses on the door at Wittenberg, this is called history, by the way. If you went to public school, you may not be familiar with this. But... There's a thing called the Reformation, and in religion you have, uh, it's, you know, in America you have a lot of folks who are Roman Catholics, then you have people that are quote-unquote Protestants. What is a Protestant? That comes from the word protest. Well, you know where that comes from? It comes from Martin Luther, because Martin Luther protested and wrote out, what was it, 95 theses that he protested and did not agree with, and he nailed them to the door at Wittenberg, and uh, as a result of his protest, a reformation swept Europe, and uh, it impacts us to this day. So, um, there were other men that God used, but this reformation literally earthquaked the world, and it changed the world. It was a movement of God, because he was a Roman Catholic priest. He was trying to earn his way to God's forgiveness, Martin Luther was. 
He would confess sins by the hour and fall asleep exhausted and would wake up and realize he had forgotten something. He could, in his heart, in his soul, he could find no peace with God. This went on for years and years and years. He would go through all the rigmarole and lighting all the candles and all the traditions. He was a brilliant man, a brilliant scholar. He could not find peace with God. And then as he was studying the book of Galatians and he was studying the book of Romans, he came across this phrase, and it was like it jumped off the page. It was illuminated to him by the Holy Spirit that the just shall live by faith. That we are saved, not by our works, but we are saved by the blood and sacrifice of Christ himself who died in our place. And he began to see this, and he began to preach it. And other men picked up on it. So you have the great reformers. Uh, Thomas Cranmer was one of the great reformers. And what happened to Cranmer, Nathan, Nathan Busenitz, I'll, I'll just read a couple things, because he does a real good job of condensing this. It's all about, and to me, it's about finishing strong. Uh, he says, 458 years ago, a crowd of curious spectators packed University Church in Oxford, England. They were there to witness the public recantation of one of the most well-known English reformers, a man named Thomas Cranmer who had preached that we are saved, not by works, but by grace. He had preached Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, not that not of yourself, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works that any man should boast. So he had discovered the gospel, he was a powerful preacher, but he had been arrested by the agents of Queen Mary, of Bloody Mary, who was burning evangelical Bible-believing Christians at the stake left and right. They put him in prison, um, He'd been in prison for three years. At first, his resolve was strong, and I'm paraphrasing Busenitz here, but they wore him down. He, he, was, he was starved. He was, he was sick, horrible conditions. Uh, they kept interrogating the guy, and they just wore him down. Uh, he, he lost his resolve, and finally, in, 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 and, and he suddenly developed this tremendous fear of being burned at the stake which is understandable, but he lost his courage. And at a particular moment, they sensed the weakness and they gave him pen and uh, parchment and with his right hand, he um, denied the faith. Everything he had taught, he denied it. Not only did he deny it and put it in writing, but then they brought him to this church and they had him read in public his recantation. And they were all there the officials, the persecutors, they were all there to watch his public humiliation. And in the midst of his reading this, suddenly a surge of power and strength came to him. And in the middle of his recantation, he recanted his recantation and said, I am grieved that I, that I did this. It, it was an error of conscience. And I've got the quote here, I won't read it. But um, he said, I did it because of fear to save my life, but it was right and it was true back then and it's still right and it's true right now. There was just a surge of power from the Holy Spirit. Well, they went insane. And uh, they took him right out, built a fire, and he said, he said, I detest my right hand, so my right hand shall burn first. And that fire and that flames 
And he got that right hand loose as those ropes fell away, and he put that right into the white hot by the power of God. There's a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. Because sometimes we think, man, how do those people do that? And you see, you, uh, John Fox recorded all of the persecution and the martyrs who died for the faith, some of them women, some of them children. And what was astonishing, there was, there was uh, several guys who went out preaching and converting people as they were burned at the stake. There was tremendous power. God gave them a special grace that, uh, they, quite frankly, the only explanation is they didn't feel the flames. They were being consumed, but they continued to preach. Is that wild or what? So here's a guy, talk about running the race, here's a guy that was running really well, and then what happened to him? He faltered, he had a serious lapse of courage, he, denied, he basically denied the faith, he recanted. And you know what's fascinating to me about this? He actually finished strong. Isn't that great? Because the fact is, we all have our ups and downs. Yes, we do. We all have our setbacks. We all have our moments of weakness. We all have moments when we are anxious and when we're overcome by fear. And, and, uh, and it's like someone puts us up on a rack at Jiffy Lube and they pull the drain plug of our courage and it just all comes pouring out. We have no courage. No, it's finished. It's over. And we all, th we all have th things we have done as Christians that we regret. We're ashamed. I remember Mary and I were in England. How many years? I don't know. Two I don't know. What year is this? 14? It had to be th 2001, 2002. And we're in this little village, and we're eating dinner at this place. And it's very cramped quarters, and this couple's next to us from Scott. I mean... I mean, you could hardly move your elbow. And they were right there, and we started talking to them. And they came in a few minutes after we did. And as we're talking, they came in and they served our dinner. And, uh, and usually right then, I'd bow my head with Mary and hold her hand and pray. And I didn't do it. Because I was talking to them. That really hacked me off, that I did that. That was just, that was cowardly on my part. Um, and it bothered me so much that I thought, if I ever go back to England, I'm going back in that restaurant with Mary, and I don't care who's sitting next to me, I'm going to pray. And I did. We all have times of weakness, where we don't stand up for the Savior. And we get discouraged and we turn on ourselves and, you know, man, I'll never finish strong. I'm never going to amount to anything. Um, well, I, I want us to take courage tonight because let me tell you something. This desire to finish strong is a great desire. But um, when you have the desire to follow Christ and you actually have the desire to finish strong, you should know this. You are going to get significant opposition. That's just the fact of the matter. If this is in your mind at all, I want to run the race, I want to follow Christ, I, I really would like the Lord to use me in my sphere of influence with whoever He has given me to, um, to, to be an example of them, following the Lord. Man, I, I have so much behind me where I wasted, but I, I would really like for this to happen. 
Just count on that. If you have that desire and you ask that, you are going to get significant opposition. Um, when I was in, in 94 doing the research for this book, Finishing Strong, um, I came across uh, a man named Robert Clinton, been in ministry for a long time, and his expertise and, and his research and his study has been in the whole area of Christian leadership. And he's been doing it a long time. And I came across a book that he had written called The Making of a Leader, and it was, um, it was kind of hard reading, but he had some stellar teaching and concepts on how God makes a leader that I'd never seen anywhere else. And um, I was out at a seminary in California where he would teach, and I was in the bookstore, and I saw a section of uh, materials that were prepared for his students that they were buying in the bookstore, and there was a syllabus, and it was about this thick, very small print. I started thumbing through it, and I thought, you know, this syllabus and this research he kind of condensed that in this book, so I bought this syllabus, and I started reading it. It was just chock full of incredible... He studied over a thousand Christian leaders in the scriptures, uh, church history, contemporary evangelical leaders. I mean, he was just a machine studying the lives of Christian leaders. How it is that God develops Christian men. Uh, anyway, um, so I bought his syllabus, and I read it cover to cover. And then I picked up the phone one day, called his office, and they actually put me through. And I said, hey, I wanted to thank you for your stuff. I read your book, and then I actually got a hold of your syllabus. And he said, the red one or the blue one? I said, the red one. He goes, oh, no, no, I've completely revised that. I'll send you the blue one. And the blue one was bigger than the red one. And he sent it to me, and I read it. He really had some great stuff. Um, I drew on some of his research as I put together the book Finishing Strong, and let me give, let me give it to you. Um, he, um, he basically said, he, he looked at a thousand leaders, uh, some in the scripture, some in church history, missionaries, pastors, guys like Martin Luther, etc., etc., okay? Cranmer he perhaps looked at. Looked at how God developed them and the, the race that they ran, okay. Then uh, he he knocked it even down. Let me find my notes here. He knocked it down even further because he couldn't, he couldn't look at the thousand leaders. It was too many guys. So what he did, he narrowed it down to a hundred leaders who he termed prominent leaders, a hundred prominent leaders. And then out of those hundred prominent leaders, what he did was he, um, he looked in Scripture at 49 of the men who were covered in scriptures. Others were men who lived after the scriptures were written. And what he did was, as a result of looking at all those guys and focusing on 100 and then focusing on 49, if I'm making any sense, he figured out that in the race of the Christian life, there are four ways you can finish. Let me give them to you. The first one is, is to be cut off early. The second one is to finish poorly in the race. The third one is to finish an average finish or finish so-so. And the fourth one is to finish strong. Now, let me use his definitions. Um, 
Now, he's talking about 49 leaders in the Bible. And the reason 49 leaders in the Bible, he looked at these 49 guys because we had enough biographical information on them to know how they started and how they finished. Now, some of them, like David and Daniel and Abraham, we got all kinds of information. Others, we don't have as much, but enough to know how they started and how they finished. So these 49 guys, this is where he come up with these four things. To be cut off early means they were taken out of leadership through assassination, killed in battle, prophetically denounced, or they were overthrown. Okay? Typical examples of those cut off early included Abimelech, Samson. Samson was cut off early. Um, Josiah. Josiah was the greatest of the kings, but he went into battle and was killed early. Early by human reckoning, not by the plan of God. That was the plan of God. My times are in thy hand. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. So God takes some early. They don't live to be 80 or 90. They go out at 32 or 39 or whatever it is. So these guys were cut off early, okay? Uh, to finish poorly means exactly what it says. The next category. Uh, to finish poorly means they were going downhill in the latter part of their lives. In other words, they started strong, but as they passed midlife and got into the 50s and 60s, they began to decline in terms of their passion for the Lord, and they dropped off significantly. The all-time model for finishing poorly is Solomon, because as a young man, no one had a better start than Solomon. His, his, his father David had made mistakes with the other children. He was going to do it right with Solomon. Uh, he could not build the temple himself, David, because he was a man of, of, of blood. So his son Solomon was going to build it. So he did everything he could to get the materials, to get the resources, to get the funds together so that Solomon could do that work. And then as a young man, when he was anointed king, God appeared to Solomon twice. He was in the presence of the almighty, holy God of Israel. Twice. You know, that's, there's no better start than that. And how was it that Solomon finished? He finished poorly. You say, yeah, but he built the great temple in Jerusalem. Yeah, he did. But because he had gone off and married foreign wives, which the Scripture told him not to marry, those wives turned his heart against the one true God, and he was building temples all over Jerusalem to the false gods and sacrificing to the false gods. He went out and finished as an idolater. So in the Christian life, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. Finish so-so means this, Clinton says, it means they did not do what they could have done or should have done. Hmm. Why not? They got distracted. They got uh, bored. They got, um, oh, can we say this? They didn't watch their life and their teaching. They didn't do 1 Timothy 4, 16. They got sloppy. They started compromising convictions. This is what happened. Did it just happen overnight? No. It's, these kinds of things are subtle, and these kinds of things are gradual. We, we lose our discipline. We lose our convictions. We start caring more about what people think than about what God thinks. We get sloppy in, in, our, in our character. We get influenced by stuff that doesn't matter. Okay. 
So they, they finished, but they finished so-so. Uh, Here's the third one. To finish well or to finish strong means they were walking with God personally at the end of their lives. That's what it means. They just, see, to finish strong, what does it mean? You just keep following Jesus. You just keep following Jesus. You stay close to the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. You're following him. You, you are building certain things into your life to enable you to withstand the world and the flesh and the devil and to, and to follow the narrow path Broad is the road, Jesus said, that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Uh, last week I talked about uh, the fact that, well, as one man Dr. Paul Beck said to his young son-in-law at the time, John Bassanio, don't want to tell the whole story again, but young 21 John Bassanio, 21-year-old John Bassanio, his future father-in-law, who was a pastor, said, John, as you go into ministry, keep your heart close to Christ every day. And the young man said, yes, sir. But the older man knew he wasn't quite getting it, and he said, John, it's been my experience for every Ten young men who start strong with Christ in their 20s, that by the time they hit the finish line in their 50s or 60s or 70s or 80s, only one out of ten is actually going to finish strong. That shocked him, stunned him. He had friends that were in Bible college with him that were going to be pastors and missionaries. He wrote down 24 names of his friends that were committed to Christ in the back of his Bible as the years went by. I heard him at a luncheon say, uh, I've received letters, I've gotten a phone call, I've had to turn to the back, put a line through a name. He said, I'm 53 years old of the original 24 names, there are three of us left. Now why is that? Why is that? Dr. Howard Hendricks did a survey of 246 men who were in ministry, pastors, missionaries, worship guys, youth leaders, evangelists. Um, and I remember him years and years ago talking about this in a class. And I called him one day and, and I said, Prof, can you run that by me one more time, the 246 guys you talked about? He said, yeah. And he went over it with me. He said, yeah, 246 guys, all, you know, significant ministries, serving the Lord, different gifts, but uh, solid guys. And uh, I surveyed the 246 guys because what they all had in common is that they had all gotten trapped in sexual immorality, watch this, within two years of each other. Two years. Um, that's ten a month. I, I'm going to tell you a story that sounds so bizarre, you may not believe me, but it's absolutely true. Maybe 25 years ago, maybe 28 years ago, I'm on a plane, and we're taking off, Guy sitting next to me, probably 50-ish, regular-looking man. Uh, we start taking off, and, uh, and I, I can tell the guy's praying. He's got his head bowed. And he's praying, and, you know, I'm sure he's a little nervous. That's what I thought. And he's, he's praying the whole, I mean, you know, the whole time he's praying. 
And uh, I reached down, I don't know if I pulled out my Bible or if I had a Christian book I was reading. And at a certain point we leveled off and he said to me, he said, uh, I see what you're reading here, are you a Christian? And I said, yeah, I, I am actually. I said, are you? And he says, no. I said, oh. I said, I, I, I saw you with your eyes closed. I, I, I just assumed you were praying. He said, oh, I was praying. He said, but I'm a Satanist. I said, really? He was dead serious. He said, yes, I was praying to Satan. I said, oh, okay. Well, I don't run into that every day, I'll tell you that. And, <laughs> you know, it was unusual. And he said, yes. He said, I've committed, along with some other leaders in our movement, and this is what he said. He said, I've committed to pray every day for the downfall of the top 100 Christian leaders in America. Now, this is so bizarre that as I tell it, I'm sort of thinking, did this really happen or did I dream this? But it happened. And then I dialogued with the guy for a while. He was dead serious. Uh, now, isn't it interesting that Dr. Henrich surveyed 246 guys in leadership positions? And uh, they all got involved in sexual immorality. Now, I will say this, and Dr. Henry, Hendricks told me this. He said, all of these guys were solid doctrinally. All of these guys were solid theologically. Believed in the authority of the scriptures, believed in the inerrancy of the word. I mean, there was no doctrinal deviation here. But what did Paul tell Timothy? Watch yourself and your doctrine. They were watching their doctrine, but they weren't watching themselves. Why is it that it apparently is so difficult to finish strong in the Christian life? Here's the answer. Because when you decide that you're all in with Christ, and you're going to pursue him, and he's going to be first in your life, and you're going to follow him regardless, all this other stuff you wasted your life with, but now you're all in with Christ, Okay, know this. When you get all in with Christ, you're painting a target on your back. And you're going to get opposition for the first time in your life. There was no reason for the enemy to bother you before because you didn't give a rip. You were already neutralized. You were half-hearted, therefore you're ineffective. Why should he miss with you? You're already ineffective. But when a guy gets serious and a guy gets intentional, now you're going to get opposition because... He cannot have, he, have you uh, making an impact and obviously following the Lord because that's going to influence others. As Paul said, you follow me as I follow Christ. We can't have someone here actually doing this and living it. Can't do that. You can believe it if you want, just don't live it. Just don't put it into practice. Just don't let it affect your behavior. Go to church if you want, but run your business the way you've always run it. But when you say, I'm not going to do business the way I've always done it, now uh, this business belongs to the Lord, and I'm going to honor Him and please Him, okay, now just count on it, you're going to get some heat. The reason that so few who start out finishing, to finish strong actually finish strong is because of the ambushes. Uh, the, the, uh, I heard Joel Aldrich 
pastor in California and then uh, president of Multnomah School of the Bible. I heard Joel, uh, uh, how many, I can't even remember how long ago this was. I'll never forget. He said, the enemy will wait 40 years to spring a trap. He will set you up. He's serious. He is subtle. And see, here's what happens. Guys get serious about the Lord, and now, for the first time, you've got an enemy who, uh, your adversary, the devil, goes about, Peter says, like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He wants to eat you alive. He wants to discredit you. This is hardball stuff. This is playing with the big boys here. So what he does is he sets up ambushes, and apparently... There are three major ambushes that he uses time and time again to take out men who have the desire to finish strong. So let's observe them. The first ambush, let me just give you the three and then we'll come back and break it down. The first ambush is the ambush of another woman. That's number one. The second ambush is the ambush of money. Of money. The third ambush is the ambush of a neglected family. Uh, so I started researching this stuff. Now, this is kind of heavy. Um, so let me give you something light, just to kind of... Give us some breathing room here for a minute. While I was working on this stuff, I was doing a conference in Nashville, and I had a break, so I went down to a bookstore, and I was going to try to, you know, I'm always looking for stuff. That's called research, actually. And you know the old adage, if you borrow from one source, it's plagiarism. If you borrow from many, it's research. <laughs> By the way, there's nothing new under the sun, but um, anyway. I'm in this Christian, not a Christian bookstore, I'm in this bookstore in Nashville, and I find this book, makes sense, on country music, and I find this book on uh, the top 100 titles, song titles of, of uh, country music. Just a small little, so I start flipping through this. I'm doing research. Can I give you a few? Yeah. Just, just to kind of lighten the load here for a minute. Um, okay. I just wrote these down. Uh, if the phone doesn't ring, it's me. <laughs> there ain't no queen in my king-size bed. <laughs> Only guys that drink a lot of whiskey can come up with this. <laughs> I've enjoyed as much of this as I can stand. Yeah, I'll cross that out. You're the reason our kids are ugly. <laughs> Truth is, we're living a lie. That must be a George Strait song, huh? I'm ashamed to be here, but not ashamed enough to leave. That's a boy who was raised in a Baptist church somewhere. He's just <laughs> dealing with some guilt. I wouldn't take her to a dog fight, even if I thought she could win.
<laughs> That's research. All right. Now let's get serious. All you have to do is just kind of, well, let me say this. It's, it's, it's tragic how often over the years that I've gone in to do a men's conference somewhere and, you know, I'd be there a weekend and, and usually during that time of the weekend, you know, three or four sessions talking with different guys, different pastors, I would find out and I mean, this happened often. Probably at least, I want to say it happened over half of the conferences I went to. Might have been 75%. I never really tallied it. It happened frequently. Sometime during the weekend, I would find out of a, of a significant Christian leader who had had a, a great influence in that particular region who had recently gone down. And the majority of times, I, I mean almost nine out of ten times, it was the ambush of another woman. Uh, Dr. Howard Hendricks, the 246 pastors. Why did he interview those guys? Because they all got involved with a woman other than their wife. Every single one of them. And then I said, Prof, I remember you saying as you interviewed these guys that you found, as I recall, was it three or four traits? He said four traits running through their experiences. Let me give them to you. Uh, the, of the 246 men, the first trait that became apparent is that they had no personal time in Scripture. And he said, wait a minute, I thought these guys were in ministry and all that. Well, they were. Well, didn't they have to prepare and study? Well, for most of them, you know, this, this happened in their 40s, 50s, a uh, few guys younger, but they had been doing it long enough. Hey, you do something for 10, 15, 20 years, and you don't have to put as much time into it as you used to because you got a catalog, and you got a wealth of information, and you got some experience. So for guys like this, you know, after you do this 15, 20 years, I mean, you can get an outline to get up and speak, you can get an outline in 10 minutes. And you got enough stories in your head from this and this, you can get up and you can do it and you can wing it. And what happened is, they just got out of Scripture. Now you wouldn't know it to hear them. A lot of them had it memorized. But they, were out, they weren't in the Word of God on a consistent basis. They used to be. And why is this important? Thy word I have hit, Psalm 119, thy word I have hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. I actually flip those verses in order. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from thy law. They weren't in the word of God. The enemy does not want me in the word of God. Deuteronomy 32, it is not an idle word for you, it is your life. Matthew 4, 4, man, Jesus said, shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God is here. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is able to divide between joint and marrow, between soul and spirit, and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No wonder he doesn't want me in the word. He wants me out of the Word. 
All Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, is inspired by God, breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Okay. So you see why the enemy would not want me in the Scripture. The Scripture is my source of power. It's my, my source of nutrition. It's my protein. It's my good carbs. It's my antioxidants, AEC, chromium, potassium, selenium. Everything I need is in there. Okay. So he doesn't want me in the Word. These guys used to be in the Word consistently. No more. Every single one of them, without exception, was no longer in the Scriptures as private worshipers and students of the Word. Okay? That's number one. Number two, they had no accountability to anybody in their lives. They were able to set themselves up that no one could get close enough to ask them a serious uh, probing question. Um, Chuck Swindoll said years ago that accountability is a willingness to explain your actions. A willingness. See, so often, when we're doing stuff we shouldn't be doing, we're not willing, we're defensive. We, wanna, we got it in the dark, and we don't want it being brought out into the light. And we don't want anybody asking about it. Because we got our little private secret stash going on here. You see? So, you know, I don't want my wife asking. I don't want, you know, my friend. I don't want my buddy, you know. Now, you don't need to be accountable to a thousand people, but you need to be two or three or four people in your life that can ask you anything, and you'll give them a straight answer. These guys had built a wall around themselves. They weren't accountable to anybody. They were living by themselves, under themselves, uh, secret sin. Okay. Uh, here's the third thing. 80% of them got caught in the ambush of another woman by counseling women. They were pastors. You say, well, I'm not a pastor. It doesn't matter. What you have to look out for is, is getting emotionally bonded to a woman other than your wife. It can happen at work. It can happen with a receptionist. It can happen with someone from another department and suddenly you're working on a project and you're spending time with her doing this project, but there is all of a sudden this chemistry. And you know, if you don't know what you're doing with chemistry, there can be an explosion. <laughs> and that's what happens in deals like this. And with these pastors, they're doing counseling. You're a pastor, you counsel. And what happens is they'll meet with a gal and then instead of handing her to a woman to d talk with her and all that, they, they just keep meeting with her and keep meeting. And, you know, maybe things are not going well at home. It's a hard time in the marriage for both. And suddenly there's a vulnerability emotionally and all of a sudden, nothing sexual. Before a guy falls sexually, he falls emotionally. And there are all these, you know, all these rockets start going off. And you're just drawn and you can't wait and you're hoping she'll call next week for an appointment. Now, if anything like this sounds familiar, you better watch yourself. And by the way, you're not the first guy who's ever been in this situation. It happens. When I was a young rookie pastor, it happened to me. And I was meeting with a couple, and, you know, and then I remember one time the guy couldn't show up, and, and it was a last-minute thing, and so I talked to the wife briefly, and, well, we'll meet next time, and your husband comes back. 
That happened a couple times and she called, he was taken out of town and she called and said, you know, we're not gonna be able to meet for a while because um, uh, this is gonna be a long-term deal, he's gonna be out of town. And I said, well, that's fine, we'll just, you know, when he gets back, let me know, we'll, we'll meet together again, the three of us. I put down the phone and I realized I was disappointed she wasn't coming in. And I was very happily married and it scared me. It scared me so much, I left the office about 2, 2.30, whatever time it was. I put down that phone, I thought about this, and I said, what the heck is going on here with me? What is this? And I realized, I realized to myself that if I was a single guy and I met that gal, I'd probably ask her out. So I got in the car and I drove home and I walked in and Mary said, what are you doing here? And I said, is Rachel asleep? And she said, yeah. I said, I gotta talk to you, I'll tell you something. I just sat down and told her what happened. You know why? Because she needed to know. Because I'd seen better men than me go down on this stuff. So I just wanted to tell her, and I told her. I said, I, I, I said Mary, nothing's happened. She goes, I know that. She said, Steve, she's an attractive gal. I can understand that. She said, it makes sense, but I'm really glad you told me. I said, I love you. She said, I know you love me. I know that. She wasn't freaked out. She said, I know. I'm just glad you told me. But again, I, I saw guys that had great influence on my life, and that's precisely how they went down, and I had a fear of that. And I still have a fear of it. Um... Are we on number three? Four. four? What's four? Oh, every one of them said to Dr. Hendricks, I thought it would never happen to me. Now that's fascinating because let him who stands take heed lest he... If you think it can happen to you, it probably will. Pride goes before the fall. Okay, now I'm spending more time on this ambush than I intended. But let's... Okay, so you got the four things? So 246 guys had these four traits in their lives before they got ambushed by the temptation and the trap of another woman. So let's do a little um, evaluation, okay? Let's go through these questions. Uh, you ever, you ever uh, you know, buy life insurance and then the guy comes by and he's going to sign you up and he starts asking all these questions. I remember doing that. And then they sent me down to the aerobic center and they said, we'll pay for it. And, you know, you're going to get on a treadmill for Dr. Cooper and he's going to check you out and all this stuff because they wanted to know my level of health. They wanted to know my risk level before they sold me that policy. You know about this. Okay. Um, so let's just four questions. So uh, what was the first thing the enemy did with them? got them no time in the Word of God personally. Why? They got real busy. Man, I'm just running, okay. But no time in the Word of God. You ought to have at least three times a week where you're feeding on Scripture or listening to it or something. Okay? Now, if your answer is, no, I don't have that, okay, right there, you're at risk. All right, what's the second thing? No accountability. Is there anybody who can talk straight to you, a buddy? Is there anybody, or have you just isolated yourself and nobody can get inside you and ask you anything uncomfortable? Is that where you are? 
Okay? Well, if that's where you are, uh, uh, right now you're at moderate risk. You're, you're down two on four. Let's go to number three. Uh, are you spending any time with a woman who's not your wife? Are you looking forward to being with her or having lunch or hanging out or meeting her for coffee or whatever or going by her day? Are, are you interested, attracted? Is there chemistry? And you're going along with it? Okay. If, if there is, you're a bad risk. What, what about number four? Um, well, listen, and I've had guys tell me this, who are in all three situations. Well, let me tell you something. Everything's fine. Nothing's going to happen. Oh, in other words, just what these guys said, it'll never happen to me. Well, listen, now, you say, is that high risk? No, this is called dead meat. <laughs> it's just a matter of when. You're, you're, setting, you just, you're set up, and before you know it, your carcass is going to be hanging off a meat hook. You're going down. So in your heart of hearts, where are you? And you can assess your risk level, and you know what? This is serious stuff. And, on, and, and tonight, as you're sitting here, the enemy, not the enemy, but the Lord's already been talking to you about what you need to do. So can I encourage you something about something? Do it. Whatever steps, steps you need to take, take them. You remember Jesus said, if your eye offends you, put on sunglasses? <laughs> he said, if your hand offends you, put it in a, in a bandage. Somebody said, if your eye offends you, what do you do? Pluck it out. If your hand offends you, what do you do? Cut it off. Now, he was using hyperbole to make a point. But there are times when you have got to cut off certain things to save your life. If gangrene's heading up your knee, you better cut the sucker off. Okay. Let's talk about the second kind of ambush. All right? First one's ambush of another one. This is the ambush of money. We don't talk a lot about this because everybody, because you've got to have money. You got bills to pay, you got a family to support, you got to take care. What is it? First Timothy 5 8. If a man doesn't provide for his own, he's worse than an unbeliever. You got to have a job, you got to work, you got to provide, you got to have money. Some of you guys are out of work. That is stressful because you can't bring in the money. Joe Lewis, the heavyweight champ, Joe Lewis said, I don't love money, but it has a way of quieting my nerves. <laughs> I love that. So, so then what do you mean? See, well, the Bible says, Jesus, you can't love God and money. You can't do it. But see, money is a trap and a snare. Real quick, 1 Timothy 6. Verse 6, godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. How much do you need to be content? John Rockefeller, you've heard this story. Richest man in the world in his day. Someone asked him, how much do you need, Mr. Rockefeller, to be happy? He said, just another million. Just another million. Verse 7, we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Contentment is hard to learn. And watch this. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Uh, nothing wrong with wanting to improve your lot, provide for your family. Nothing wrong with that. 
But there's a line, you say, where is it? I don't know. But there's a line where your God becomes wanting to get rich. And I think one of the ways, you say, well, I'm not sure where that is. Well, if you, if, if, you, you know how, you know what, you, you know what is the antidote for wanting money too much? That's a poison. You know what the antidote to the poison is? Give your money away. If you think, I love this too much, then write a check to someone who is in need or to a ministry. Because right then you're showing this really isn't my God. Because if it was my God, I wouldn't be giving it away. Am I making any sense? Oh, and by the way, Jesus said, give and it shall be given unto you. So see, this is a matter of watching your life. Where am I with money? I got to have, and listen, you got to have money and the Lord knows that. He talked about that in Matthew 6. I know what you need. I'll provide it. Your father knows. You know, okay. He knows we got to have stuff to make it. But this is an inordinate love of money and an inordinate love of stuff. Okay. Some guys, there, there are two pastors right now that are in major difficulty with major ministries over this issue. And they've done things they probably shouldn't have done. Good guys who love Christ. But you know what? This, this money thing will get a hold of you. It's gotten a hold of you. It's gotten a hold of me at times. So Lord Jesus, help me to handle this. This is kind of like nitroglycerin. Help me to handle this money thing carefully. I need your wisdom here. I love you. I'm your guy. Okay. Here's the third trap. The third ambush. The ambush of a neglected family. Well, we could go a long time, but I'm out of time. Um, the Old Testament ends with Malachi 4, verse 6. And he, when he comes, will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, lest I smite the land with a curse. See, God's very concerned about family. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, it's written to men, it's written to, to, to fathers, and it's written to grandfathers about their families and about their loving God and then teaching that love of God to their families. You see, God's very concerned about our families. In this world, as we're trying to make it in provide and do all this stuff and we're pulled a hundred different ways, it's very easy to neglect your family. True story. I'm at Dallas Seminary a number of years ago. I'm actually working on this stuff, Finishing Strong. And I'm upstairs, I'm looking for a biography on a certain Christian leader. And as I get down, it's on the bottom shelf. As I got down, literally on my knees to pull it out, I noticed the two biographies on either side. These were prominent. Now, the one I was after was a prominent Christian leader. The one to the left was another biography, and I hadn't read that book, but I'd read another book about this Christian leader. And then on the right of the book I was after was another biography about another prominent Christian leader. And I don't know if I'd read that biography or not, but this guy had three, someone had written three or four books about this guy. But I knew both of their stories. So I'm reaching for the middle biography, and the guy on the left, here's what I know about him. He had an international ministry. He was married. He had two daughters. 
he spent 25 years going around the world preaching the gospel. Incredible impact. He was away from home 10 months out of every 12 months doing his work for the gospel, fulfilling the Great Commission. Um, his marriage was a shambles. His oldest daughter departed from the faith, and his youngest daughter committed suicide. What a tragic, tragic, tragic story. By the way, his main emphasis in his ministry around the world were children. That was his focus. But I'm sure it was not his intention, but he forgot about his own girls. The other biography on the right-hand side was of a very prominent and gifted evangelist that led hundreds of thousands to Christ. But his oldest son was one of the first to come out and advocate the homosexual lifestyle as acceptable as, and to this day is an absolute rebellion to anything associated with the gospel. And I have read excerpts where Christian leaders have commented on him and to a man, they say this is an issue with his father and the neglect of his own father and the inaccessibility that he had to his own father, who was so busy out there that he neglected, I'm sure, a young man that he loved. Now listen, I, uh, these men love Christ. They love their kids. Guys, is it not true that we all have our blind spots? And this has been hard tonight because as we go over some of this stuff, See, some of you guys have been through these ambushes. Some of you guys have been through the ambush of another woman, and this is very painful, and maybe more than one, maybe a series of women, and cost you a marriage, maybe two marriages, I don't know. But you say, yeah, that's my story. I mean, man, this is, and it's just hard for you because you've come to know Christ, and this is not what you, who you are anymore, but it's who you were. And this is tough stuff. But see, once again, we're talking about finishing strong. What did Paul say? Forgetting what lies behind, I press forward to the high calling. Uh, some of you guys, uh, your whole life was money and stuff and things and possessions and da-da-da-da-da. It's not anymore. You love Christ, and he has changed you completely and totally. Uh, some of you guys, you, you have been all over that neglected family thing. And you wish you could go back and grab those years. Can I tell you something? Grab today. You've still got a family. Just ask him to help you. Ask him to help you be different than you were. Ask him to help you to be connected. Ask him to help you not to be distant. Take your wife out for dinner and leave your cell phone in the car. Just stuff like this, guys. You know, God's in the business of taking men who are failures and changing us and using us. I said it last week. I've had so many guys say to me, I want to be used by God, but I can't. 
Why not? Because I'm a failure. The question back to them is, who else does God have to choose from? We're all failures. But Jesus is a great Savior, and by his mercy and grace and sustenance, he can change us daily from the inside out and enable us who have failed miserably, horribly, to actually get in the race and finish strong. That's the good news. We thank you, Father, for this truth. Help us to live in light of it. For those who are here tonight and aware of some steps they feel they need to take in order to check sin or a wrong relationship, I pray that they will make it and do the right thing before you and know that you will honor them. Give them courage and give them a want to to follow you above anything else and to say no to this temptation that they know will destroy them. We're dependent on you completely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.